Praise the Lord. You may be seated this morning. Thank you for worshiping the Lord, setting an atmosphere of his presence, and that's what the temple is all about, that we might gather together and that he would gather with us, and that's what his desire was in the whole context of the building of his sanctuary that he may dwell among his people, and that's what God wants to do. And uh, that what we're going to be preaching on again this morning is very foundational to where God has taken us to a new level in Christ and we know that there are different dimensions and different realms spiritually that God wants us to go through. He opens doors that no man can open. He shuts doors that no man can shut. He gives us the ability to have the keys of the kingdom to be able to grow and to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and all that wonderful stuff. But what we're going to do this morning, we're going to get into our fifth sermon in our series on the tabernacle. And we're not going to give a long introduction or anything like that, but we're just going to give a few words to serve as a reminder. We see that God had instructed Moses to make him a tabernacle and gave him the exact measurements and a complete blueprint of how he was to erect that tabernacle. He also told him to make, to make him furnishings that go in the tabernacle, and each piece had to be designed after the pattern that God had commanded it. As we have said over and over and over in this series, the elements that are seen through the symbolisms of each one of these pieces of furniture, that they represent the principles that govern our faith today in the 21st century and they all point to Jesus Christ. First of all, Sermon 1, we talked about the temple itself. Sermon 2, we talked about the brazen altar. Sermon 3, we talked about the laver representing sanctification. And Sermon 4, we talked about sanctification again because it was a topic that I felt like the Lord really wanted to hammer. In this sermon, number 5, we will attempt to pass through the doors of the tabernacle and we're going to try to get into the holy place today. We've already been by the way of the brazen altar representing what salvation and sacrifice we've already been by the way of the laver which represents the washing of sanctification and now we're ready to move into the holy place and become a holy place dweller instead of a courtyard Christian can I have a man the courtyard Christian is a person that always feels the blunt of judgment and condemnation by camping at the brazen altar that altar made of brass which represents judgment and they're always feeling condemned and they're always feeling guilt and they're always feeling condemned and they're always repenting. And let me tell you, a life of victory seems to be elusive from these type of people who dwell in the courtyard. And God's got a higher realm than that. Even though it is important, and thank God that God's a God of forgiveness, and thank God if we have to ride the altar in order to get to heaven, it's going to be worth it. But God's got a better position than that for you as a believer. God wants you to go into higher ground. He wants you to quit dwelling around that brazen altar, and he wants you to move into the holy place. The first piece of furniture that the priest had to minister at and observe was a piece of furniture directly to his right when he went into the holy place, which was on the north side of the building, and it's called the table of shoe bread. And it is also referred to in scripture as the table of presence. Why would it be called the table of presence? Last week we said that there was more spiritual demonstrations outside in the courtyard than there was the actual holy place. There's not fire fire falling down on altars in the holy place and the glory of the Lord that held over the tabernacle. You couldn't see it from within the tabernacle in the holy place. There were more demonstrations out there in the outer court than there was in the holy place. Demonstrations represent power. They reveal the mighty acts of God and we're all like that. Courtyard Christians, however, gravitate to power and experience and feeling and emotions. Yet the manifestation represents the unveiled 
telling of God, which is making God known, and it's in the realm of relationship. And we're going to see the ministry at these different stations or places of furniture that's in the holy place is more relational than they are experiential. This isn't to say that experience does not happen in the holy place because they do. But the main focal point of you and I's relationship or our lives should be relational with God and not experiential with God. Can I have an amen? As a matter of fact, let me get ahead of my notes just a little bit. If you'll be relational with God, the experiences will automatically happen. You don't have to seek after them. They seek after you. In the holy place, God isn't making himself known through experience, but he's making himself known through his relationship with you. Unlike the courtyard where experience is introducing us to God, it's what made us curious. It's what has made us look into him. It's getting our attention. It's causing us to become attracted or curious to God. It's bringing us into contact with God. Yet in the holy place, it isn't the experiences that's making God known. But God is being revealed and unveiled through the relationship. And that is that's what's causing experiences to happen in the life of the believer. There is a difference in experiencing a God that you do not know and really understand than there is in knowing God by coming to know him in relationship. There's a big difference in demonstrational experiences and the relational experiences. Relational experiences are much deeper. They're much more meaningful than that of experiences. Demonstrational experiences are more surface-oriented, while relational experiences are more internally oriented. When I first seen Jenny, you know, I was attracted to her outer beauty, and, and I began to pursue her due to her outward display that she presented. She was a hot baby. You know what I mean, man? She was hot, amen? And every time she walked, to me, there was a demonstration. She was demonstrative in her smile, in her talk, and in her walk, and in her look, and I liked what I seen, if you know what I mean. I liked it very much. She was attractive, and I was curious of her, but after I become to know her in a loving and a relationship, and I begin to, our experience begin to grow into a relationship, one of intimacy, which is much more greater than that of the outward displays of her character that attracted me. In relationship, I don't only, only, I don't only see the shallow displays of her character that, was attract, that I was attracted to, but I see the inner beauty of who she really is as a person and as a woman. And this is the same way it is with God. In the outer court, I only see the outward displays of his power, of his character and his workings. I see his earmarks. I see his fingerprints. I see glimpses of him. But when I get in the holy place, I come to see the beauty of the Lord. Hallelujah. This is why the psalmist said in Psalms 27 verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that what I seek after, that I may dwell in his house of the Lord forever, all of the days of my life, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire this temple. The holy place, the temple, isn't just talking about a physical and a tangible temple, but it's talking about a place in God. It's talking about a position in God. Did you know that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You and I are to have God housed within us. The psalmist said that he sought to be in the holy place. He sought to be in that dimension of the holy realm. That he sought to be in the inner temple so that what? He could see the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord is seen in the holy place and not out in the courtyard. The courtyard is very 
very messy. It's full of blood and guts and sacrifice and burnt flesh and things of that nature. But beauty is seen not in power, but in the person of God. And this is why the psalmist said in Psalms 50 and 2, out of Zion, the church, the temple, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. There is so many that is only attracted to the power and the displays of the Lord, but not to the presence or the person of the Lord. They seek his hand. They're always wanting something from him, but they don't seek his face. Therefore, perfection of beauty is never, ever seen. And let me tell you, they're never eating out of the golden bowls and of the golden tinsels that's in the holy place. And they're never really able to taste and see that the Lord, he is good. A lot of people's focus is on the external instead of the internal. And this is why that Peter... Peter said to the church in 1 Peter 3 and 3, do not let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be of the hidden person of the heart, which is precious. Outside in the courtyard, we marvel at the power of God. We marvel at his mighty acts and his, and his mighty power. But inside the, the temple, we marvel at the presence of God and the beauty of his holiness. We begin to see him for who he is. The psalmist said, only one thing have I asked, and that will I seek after, that I may be dwell in his presence. He sought for his presence. He longed to see the face of the Lord. As a matter of fact, the word showbread means the face or presence that turn. That's what the actual Strong's Concordance says in Strong's Concordance 6440. You can look it up. God's face is revealed through the shoe bread, which represents Jesus who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. A question is asked in the book of Zechariah, chapter nine, verse 17. I'm gonna preach in a minute. I'm laying a foundation. He said, for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. You know, I wanna see the goodness of the Lord. I want God to bless me. I want God to touch me. But there's one thing that is greater, that I don't only see his goodness, but I see his beauty. I see him for who he is. I under, begin to understand his deity and his sovereignty and his majesty. Can I have an amen? The psalmist answers that question. He says in Psalms 104, blessed be the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He maketh the clouds his chariot. He rides upon the wings of the wind. He makes the messenger's winds, his ministers a flame of fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. That's the kind of God that we serve. Can I have an amen? In Psalms chapter 86, verse 8 through 10, among the gods there's none like you. Lord, no deeds can compare with you. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. You are great and you do marvelous things. You alone are God. All I can say is what Samuel said in 2 Samuel 7, 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you. There is no God beside you. I want you to know there is no God like unto our God. Can you give him praise in this house today? Hallelujah. The psalmist said he's clothed with majesty and honor and his fist is the power of his hand. Can I have an amen? Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
we stand here this morning now at the table of his presence. Presence is represented again as relationship. Don't forget this. How does this table represent relationship with God? First of all, let's look at its name one more time. It is known again as the table of shoe bread or show bread, some say it, and the other is the table of presence. One, one translator said it's called the table of shoe bread or show bread because he's shown forth in it. When God commanded Moses to make a tabernacle, he gave that long detailed list of all the vessels to be used in this temple. And among them was this first station called the table of shoe bread or the table of presence. The table was made of Achaia wood overlaid with precious pure gold. Its size was two cubics in length, which is about three feet. And it was one cubic wide, which is about one and a half feet. And it was about one and a half cubics high, which was about two and a half feet tall, uh, high. So here it was, we see that it was three feet long, foot and a half feet wide, and two and a half feet tall. So it was not that big of a table whatsoever. It was a small thing. And let me stop right here, and that is where the church goes wrong. Too many times we're looking for the big things and we miss God in the small and significant things. Sometimes he's not in the whirlwind. Sometimes he's not in the earthquake. Sometimes he's not in the, sometimes he's just in that still small voice. Can I have an amen? Around this table was a border of gold and there was also a molding of the shape of a crown. Also, a little further in on the table was an additional border made that was the size of the width of a man's hand in which to hold the contents in place. There were four golden legs that held the table up and each leg or foot was placed golden rings, which was for the purpose to insert two golden plated poles that was made for transporting it or carrying it. This table was carried somewhat like what the Ark of the Covenant was carried. Upon the top of this table, there was placed 12 cakes of bread that was made of fine flour. Each loaf of bread was to contain two tenths of an ephah of flour. And one writer said that that would be around a gallon of flour alone just to make one loaf of bread. Each loaf of bread had a gallon of flour in it. Think about it. Each loaf of bread would weigh somewhere around five pounds each just with the ingredients of flour alone, which was a total of the 12 cakes would be 60 pounds. The loaves were uniquely shaped. They, they had to remain whole and unbroken during the baking process. It is written that the loaves of bread was made in the form of a ship, like that of an open ark. The upper edges of the loaves were turned in so that the loaves looked like a two-sided box whose upper flaps were slightly pushed in. We're not going to get into that, but it kind of reminded you of the top of Noah's ark. And these loaves was wide at the top and narrow on the bottom like that also of a fishing ship. These loaves has also been referred to in the Jewish writings dated way, way back hundreds of years ago as the dancing ships. The loaves were to be unleavened and each load, loaf of bread was 10 hand breaths, breaths in length, five hand lengths in width, and my hand is seven inches. So that means that there would be about, the bread itself would be about 70 inches long and it would be about 35 inches wide, which is 5.8 feet long and is about 2.9 feet uh, uh, in, in width. 
that, and it, matter of fact, most writers said that the loaves of bread were six feet long and three foot wide. The bread was bigger than the table. Think about it. The table's only three foot long, and it's only a foot and a half wide. And when you put them breads up long ways upon the table and stacked, you'll see that the bread hanged over. What is that saying? There's bread enough, can I have you, that you can't consume all of the bread. It's the weightiest thing in the holy place is the weight of that bread. And let me just get ahead of my notes, and you're going to find it out later. The weightiest thing that should be in the house of God here today ought to be the bread, ought to be the presence and the weightiness of God's presence. Can I have an amen? It ought to be so weighty that there's more than enough. You can't consume it all. You can't eat it all. There's more. And every experience you have, there's another greater experience awaiting on the other side because it never runs out. It's bigger than we are. It's mightier than we are. God's got enough. Oh, somebody, would you just stand and give him praise for that? Oh, mighty God. He's bigger than anything you'll ever face. He's greater than anything that you'll ever go through. Can I have an amen? <clears throat> oh, I get stuck there and we'll be here there a while. Not only was there 12 loaves of bread placed upon the table, they were also placed in two stacks, each stack concerning six loaves. Also on the table was four vessels of gold with the bread along with golden dishes and utensils. Two of the small vessels on the table held frankincense. Another vessel, there was a pitcher of wine. Now, I'm not going to get into all of it, I'm sure. Because of time, I'm going to stop right here, and I'm going to try to reveal the symbolics that I've already begun to establish that represent our faith in this 21st century. Now, there are more symbolics to this table, but guys, like I said, I can't spend all my time on these different furnishings. Uh, we got to move on in our series. Uh, but I'm just trying to hit the highlights of this table. First of all, the bread of the table of showbread, as we all know it, represents who? Represents Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 6, verse 48 through 51, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers did eat men in the winters, but they're dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven, and if any man eat this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then he goes on in John 6 and 35, and he says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes upon me will never thirst. I don't think that, I, that it was odd that Jesus, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. Therefore, Jesus was the bread in the house. Can you say amen? Jesus is the bread in the tabernacle. We also see that the bread was to be unleavened. This speaks of Christ's sinlessness and his righteousness. Leaven in the word of God has always represented sin. This is why that Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, he said, a little leaven leaveneth the whole
whole lump. In other words, he went on, he says, well, you cannot category sin. We want to put the sin into categories. It's big sins and little sins. But Paul said just a little leaven leavens that whole lump. A little sin will cause the whole body to be flawed. Can I have an amen? There's no big sins. There's no little sins. Sin, sin. But this bread was unleavened bread. We know that Jesus was sinless or he could not have been the sacrificial, spotless lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. The table being made of a K of wood represented his humanity while being overlaid with gold represented his purity. This speaks of the purity of Christ's flesh and his humanity. The flower is made of the seed of the earth. It represents also Jesus' humanity. He was robed in human flesh. But Jesus wasn't conceived by man, but he was conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of Mary. Therefore, he was not born with a sinful nature such as you and I that came because of Adam. And he was therefore, there was therefore no generational curses passed down to him through the bloodline of a man. It was the angel that said in Luke 1 and 35, fear not, Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee and that holy thing which shall be born in you shall be called the son of God. He was not born of corruptible seed but incorruptible seed. And this is why that Peter wrote describing Jesus in 1 Peter 2.22 who did no sin and neither was there guile found in his mouth. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4 and 15 for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews describes him wonderfully in the book of Hebrews 7:26, when he said, for such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Oh, hallelujah. And Peter said this about him in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, for as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold that you received from the, your, the vain traditions of your father's but you're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. And then old John came along and agreed with Paul in his writings in John 3 and 5 when he says, and you know that he was manifested to take our sins who knew no sin. Hallelujah. We also see that on this table, a crown was made out of the shittim wood or achaia wood and overlaid with gold. We see this again represent, this we see this again representing deity robed in humanity. It represents the God-man nature of Jesus. He was 100% man, yet 100% God at the very same time. Paul said this about him to the Galatians in Galatians 4 and 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth a son made of a woman made under the law. It is also said in John 1 and 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory as the only begotten of the father. Philippians 2 and 7 says but made himself of no reputation but he humbled himself in the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of a man. This is why that 1 John 1 and 2 says hereby know ye the spirit of God that every man that confesses 
truth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Can I tell you, Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus was robed in human flesh, but that flesh was holy. That flesh was not flawed. That flesh was not sinful. That flesh was a pure, holy flesh. Can I have an amen? But not only that, we see that he was not only man, but he was God. The bread from heaven was not only man and not only was God, but he was king because he was crowned with dominion and honor and power and might. The golden crown revealed him to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. No wonder the thief on the cross when he was dying said, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. In order for him to have a kingdom, then he had to be a king. And even the inscription over his cross said, Jesus, he was the what? King of the Jews. I'm here to tell you, we serve a God. We serve a God who's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the bread of heaven. He's the bread of the temple. He is Jesus Christ, the answer. Can I have an amen? Hallelujah. The writer of Hebrews proclaimed him in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under subjection to his feet. The molded crown around the table was used to keep things in their proper place. And let me tell you, the president of the United States thinks he's in charge of, the, of America. I want you to know the different presidents. Uh, Putin thinks he's got control of Russia. And you can just go on, but I got news for them. There's a king crowned with glory and everything in the whole and the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And everything's put into position. There's not a king that rises that he don't allow. There's not a governmental official that he don't get elected that he ain't in charge of. I'm here to tell you, you can fret over the government all you want to, but the government of the United States is not over Kent Miller. It's not over the palace of praise. I want to tell you, there's a sovereign king that rules. His name is Jesus Christ. He's crowned with glory and power and might and the earth is his footstool. Can I tell you in the fullness there God owns it all. As king, all power of heaven and earth belong to him. He's a sovereign God, and nothing happens that he don't allow it. According to Romans 8, 20, all things work together for our good. No wonder it's written, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no one as mighty as him. And when it comes to the bread, we also see the incense was placed along each row. The frankincense refers to and has constituted as a memorial. How do we know that? Leviticus 24, 7. And you shall put frankincense on each roll of bread that it may be on the bread for a memorial and an offering made of fire to the Lord. Now, the table of showbread is a type of Christ. We've done established that. But it's also a sign of the Lord's Supper, which is a memorial for us to keep in the New Testament. Every time we have communion, we show the Lord's death till he comes. It serves as a memorial. He also, we also see that the, in, at the end of six days, the leftover bread could be eaten by the priest as long as they did not leave the holy place. This represents that only the priest at that time could eat it. Well, what does 1 Peter 2 and 9 say about us? 
You are what? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So therefore, in the New Testament, under the new covenant of the better things to come, it's not just the priest of the Old Testament. We've all been brought under the priesthood of Christ, and all of us have access to the bread. Can you have amen to that? But they, but listen to me, the priest, however, they cannot take it out into the courtyard. This represents that we are to take of the communion, we are not to take of the communion of the Lord unworthily. Like the apostle Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh in damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many die. Did you hear what he said? Many of you sleep. And if we truly Take it unworthily, we may become sick and even die according to the scripture. We're not to take of the communion of the Lord unworthily. We cannot take God's grace for granted and frustrate the grace of God. Listen to what Leviticus 21 and 6 says. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they, for they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God, therefore they shall make it holy. In other words, just like the priests, we have to take God's communion in a holy place. The Lord's Supper cannot be taken if we're not right with each other and if we're not right with God. We have to be right in right fellowship with him. That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 21 says, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the partaker of the devil's table at the same time. Amen. You cannot serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other, you're going to despise the other one and cling to the other. And frankincense was the symbol of Jesus as the sacrificial offering for the people on the cross. And he, he was like a sweet-smelling aroma before God. It pleased God when he smelt that incense. The bread could not be broken. It had to remain whole during the baking process. Jesus did not crumble under pressure. Jesus never failed. He never faltered. His body was not given over. It didn't, he did not quit. He finished the course that was laid before him. And it was not broken until it was broken as the offering of the Lord on the day of his judgment and of the day that he went to the cross. We also see that the showbread represents the word of God. Jesus is not only the bread of life. Jesus is the word. John 1 and 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, and that word what? Became flesh. And this is why that Jesus said in Matthew 4 and 4, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. How many knows that the scripture has been referred to as the bread of life? When you take of the word, you're taken of life. We hear people all the time say, I just wish God would speak to me like he does others. He is speaking. He speaks through the word. The word is a mirror to where we see Jesus. Jesus and the word are inseparable. I want to tell you, folks, you don't always hear a rhema word every day. He doesn't go around saying, hey, Kent, just talking to me. He speaks to me through the word of God. If you want to know him, then study the word. This is about maturity. This is about coming to know God in relationship. This is why the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is no maturity, there is no growth, there is no development without the word of God. This is, this is why that Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture, say all scripture, 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Perfect, complete, mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We may be sanctified in the heart at the laver outside in the courtyard that we talked about last week, but we cannot grow in our sanctification or we cannot stay sanctified if we don't get in the word. How do I know that? Because John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth is what Jesus said. There is no life of victory absent from the word. You want victory? Study the word. Everything hinges on the word of God. I could preach a whole sermon of the importance of the word. This is why that Jesus said in John 8 and 32, know the truth. It's the truth, the word that's gonna set you free. Psalms 119 verse nine says, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto and to the word of God. This is why that David said in Psalms 119 verse 105, he said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He went on in verse 11, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It was Jesus that said in John 6 and 63, he said, it is the spirit that quickens, it's what makes alive. But he said, the flesh profiteth nothing, but the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. There's life in the word. Can I have an amen? The word of God is so important that we see that the bread not only weighed about five pounds per per loaf in flour alone, but the added ingredients that was put into the bread to keep it fresh for six days, they say weighed about a half a pound each. This is a symbol that we are to have fresh bread, which is a daily devotion in life of the word every day. Every day you get up, you need to eat your bread. You need to get your Bible out and you need to read it. It's fresh bread. It's fresh manna to you. Are you going to sleep on me this morning? You want to mature? You want to grow? You want to develop? You want to be a man of God? You want to hear the voice of God? You want to have the anointing? You want to be a a, a chain breaker, anointed, God-fearing man and woman? Then get in the Word. The power that comes from the Word is what breaks the yoke. Can I have an amen? So this means that each loaf of bread would weigh about 5.5 pounds and the total weight of that bread upon that table would be 66 pounds. This would reveal that the bread of life would be revealed in all of the 66 books of the Bible. Woo! Can you give God praise for that? You see God in Genesis. You see God in Deuteronomy. And when you don't even like to read the book of Leviticus, God's there. Amen. God's in Amos. God's in all of the 66 books of the Bible. And that matter of fact, also the bread on the table was stacked in two stacks, six on one side and six on the other. This would represent that the bread of life would be both in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. Everybody's always talking about, well, that's the Old Testament. Yeah, God's there. It's our school. Come on. It's what, there's symbolisms there. Teach us of Christ. The 12 loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. All 12 tribes of Israel would have their own loaf of bread in them, and even though they would split into what? Two camps. Later on under Rehoboam, Jeroboam, what would happen? Israel would split to the north and Judah would split to the south. Six loaves were on the north side of the table. Six loaves were on the south side of the table. This would serve as a reminder of God's abundant love for Israel and his provision for them. 
He said, even though you split and you make mistakes and things don't get, go my way, yet I still have bread. Even though you split, I'll have it to the north and I'll have it to the south. Even when you're out of the will of God, I've got an everlasting covenant with Israel. I'll not break that covenant. And even though you sin and walk away and you're gonna go through some hideous time, there'll come a time I'll gather you back as my people. And according to Paul in Romans chapter eight, all of Israel shall be saved. Somebody needs to praise the Lord for his provision here today. So why is that telling you, and I'm not gonna get here much, if you sin, there's still bread. If you fail, there's still bread. Amen. Now, one writer said, and I can't prove this scripturally, some of this stuff you have to read because of history, um, there's writings by the different rabbis that go way back in the hundreds of years. And I've studied and I've read until my eyeballs seem like they want to pop out. But one of the most interesting things I read was that the manna that fell in the wilderness that was gathered on the last day before the Sabbath took place, they had to gather enough for the next day, was the exact same amount that was put up on the table of the showbread. In other words, that each family would gather enough to make the loaf in order that would supply their need for that day. Isn't that powerful? Amen. Also, we see that in the new covenant, when Jesus fed the 5,000, that the 12 disciples distributed the food. And when it was done, guess what happened? There were 12 baskets of bread left. This represented that all 12 disciples would have the provision of the bread of life like that of the 12 tribes of Israel that it would not just be an Old Testament thing, but it would be a New Testament things as well. And it was the answer to the prayer of the people that gathered when they said, give us the bread from heaven, and Jesus did. He gave them their request. And God's desire for you here today is that we come into his temple and we learn of him and we partake of him and we eat from the bread of life. The table of showbread also had four golden rings at the feet of the legs on the table. And the golden pole that was made was for transporting the table. It would be put through those rings and the priest would bear that little table up kind of like what they did in the Ark of the Covenant. They'd carry it in the same manner. This was a symbol that the bread of life, Jesus Christ, would be revealed and carried through the world by the four gospels of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isn't that powerful? That's the word of God that people are being saved because of the four gospels of Jesus Christ. We need the word, and without it, we cannot know God. It's how we, God, God said that it's through the foolishness of preaching that men are saved. The bread was made like an open ark, and it also, like a fishing boat, it was in the form of the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I looked it up, and that's a weird-looking shape of a thing. The loaf of bread was referred to in ancient Israel known as the dancing ship. But too, too much, uh, there's too much to preach on on this little thought, but the, the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, when I read it, there's articles on it and how depth it is in the area of covenant. I don't have time. He even mentions about the oneness of a man and the woman and God's covenant over and all that stuff. But that eighth letter means life. There's life in the bread. I said, there's life in the bread. He that has the son has life. He that has not the son has not life. Can I have an amen? 
There's life in Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Life is in the bread. Life is in Jesus. You cannot find life outside of Jesus Christ. Can I have an amen? But the bread, the, the bread was, uh, the, the bread was in the shape of a ship. This is symbolic that when your ship is being tossed. Now, let me, let me explain that a little bit about that first. That bread was in a mold, and when it would bake, it would come up and then pop open. You've seen loaves of bread before where it's about that wide on the bottom and the top, boom. Well, that's what it was, but that top was even shaped like an open arc, and it had different kinds of sidewalls and everything. It was really neat looking at it. I've seen pictures of it. I tried to pull them off. and couldn't get it pulled off on my computer to show them to you. But... What was so odd is down at the bottom, it was more of a shape like a fishing boat. And what it said that, that when the waves and the sea would get rough, that boat would do this. It'd just dance. And they called it the dancing ship. And this bread was raised in the same way. And when you're out in the, when you're out in the ship of Zion, when you're in the ship of life, and the storms come and they beat upon the ship, and you find it tossed to and fro with the waves, just wake up the master because the loaf of bread's in the ship with you. That's what this is a symbol of. Isn't that powerful? That he's with you through thick and thin. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. The last symbol that I'm going to address on the table of showbread is, and there's a lot more, but the last one that I want to share is on the Sabbath day. The bread had to be changed every Sabbath day. For six days, the bread would stay fresh, but on the seventh, the bread had to be replaced. Also in the holy place, there were no seats. There was no time for sitting. But on the seventh day, fresh bread was placed upon the table to where they could eat the fresh bread that was presented before them. This represents Jesus being our Sabbath. Under the New Testament, our rest does not come from physical rest, but it comes through the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord of our Sabbath. Under the Old Testament, you labored for six days. And then you had a Sabbath. Amen? Under the New Testament, you rest, and then you labor out of that rest. So what God is saying here is that this bread from heaven wants to refresh you. You're not saved by your works, but because you're saved, you will work because out of your overflow, you'll work for the Lord. It's your rest. That's why he said, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest in your souls, for my yoke's easy and my burden's light. Amen? He tells us to keep the commandments because they're not grievous. They're not grievous to the man that's in the holy place, that's in his presence. And we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which are reasonable service. It's reasonable. It's not a hard thing when you're in the holy place, but it's a hard thing when you're out there in the outer court and you don't know God, but when you see him in his beauty, your heart melts like wax, and he becomes the Lord of your life. He becomes the Lord of your Sabbath. And then the last thing is the pitcher of wine. The pitcher of wine is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and also joy. Do you remember when uh, Jesus was at the marriage of Canaan of Galilee, and his wife came to him and said, hey, or his mother came to him and said, hey, son, they've run out of wine. He looks at her more or less in modern-day language. Well, what's that got to do with me? My time ain't yet come. And she looks at him and says, oh, really? 
And then she turns around, looks at everybody else, says, do whatever he tells you to do. He said, man, I just told you it ain't my time. But Mama says, it is your time. And how many ever knows what Mama wants, Mama gets? Amen. Even Jesus learned if you keep the women happy, you're going to have a happy church. I kid old Bill and Louise all the time when they come in the door. I say, Louise, what's Bill done this time? I'm always on her side. Amen. But the truth of the matter is they run out of wine. Wine was the joy of the service. And matter of fact, if you go back to Jewish history, you're going to find out that it was a disgrace and it was a dishonor for that to happen. And there's a big, long reason for it. And I ain't got time to preach that. I preached that before. But Jesus then says, I'll tell you what, go get the water pots. Now, what, what? Six of them. There's a number in that six all through this thing. Get the six water pots. Fill them with water. And when they did, he turned the water into wine. Water is symbolic of the word of God according to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26. That he might worship with the water of the word. Put the word in the vessel and the vessel will turn into wine which is joy. So I'm here to tell you today that God wants to take your bad experiences. He wants you to put water into your vessel. He wants you to put water into your vessel. He wants you to put the word in your vessel. And when you do, out of the word, a bright light of revelation will come and the beauty of his holiness will be seen and the things you thought was so bad wasn't bad at all. He'll turn your life into joy. He'll turn your heaviness into, into joy. Come on, somebody. A lot of times we fall apart because we've not put the word in the vessel. We've not come into the holy place, and we're not taken at the shoe bridge, Jesus Christ. We're standing out in the courtyard, and we're praying at a brazen altar. God, do something! I'm falling apart down here. Don't you see me? But the courtyard Christian is always fighting the elements of his tragedies. He's always a victim. He's always got an excuse for not being a, having what God wants him to have. But that holy place dweller. Come hell or high water, he's stable. Come on. No matter what comes against him, he stands. He perseveres. He endures. He's strong. He's equipped. Why? Because he's got bread in his teeth and wine in his cup. Ha. And he stands upon the word of God. And when the enemy comes to try to trick him up, he'll say, Nope, it is written. He quotes the word. There's life in the word. He takes the authority of the word and he quotes it. He lives by it. He preaches it to himself. He encourages himself in the word. What we want to do is sit in an outer court and do nothing and wait for God to do everything for us. 
And God says, if you're going to mature, you're going to have to get sanctified. Go into that holy place and learn how to take of the showbread. Learn how to take of the bread of life. Let me put wine and joy and fulfillment into your life. Let me make you stable. Let me make you strong. Grow in your sanctification. And I have an amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Hallelujah, I got done before 12. I know I went fast. I know I skipped a bunch, but guys, we could be at the table of showbread another two or three days, and I don't want to spend that much time on each of the furnishes. There is something symbolic of six that I could preach on that alone for about two or three days. It's un- unbelievable what's all there. But I hit the main life, so where you need to be. Come on. It's odd to me how that somebody can be in the same boat and some see opportunity and others just live in fear. There was Peter and the disciples out there when that boat was dancing, the dancing ship. Jesus come walking on the water. And can I tell you, out of all that took place, only one got out of the ship and walked on water. And you know why he walked on water? At first, they thought they'd seen a ghost. They didn't know him. But then Jesus begins to identify himself, and that's what he does. He identifies himself at the table of showbread. Fear not, it is I. Be not afraid. Peter already prayed, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come to you. You know what the Lord said? Come, Peter, it's me. And upon the basis of relationship, all of a sudden, courage began to spring up. All of a sudden, he no longer was concerned about the waves and the winds and all that stuff. And he steps out on nothing and begins to walk on water. It would have never happened if he had not come to know and hear Jesus Say, it's I. When it never happened, if Peter hadn't prayed, Lord, if that's you, well, it's me, come on. That's symbolic of the relational instead of the experiential. It's experiential enough to see Jesus walk on the water. There's a demonstration of his power. But that alone did not empower Peter. What empowered Peter was, it's him. It's him. He's here. And you'll never, you can see all the miracles you want to see. You can see the great uh, uh, demonstrations of God, but that in itself will not bring revival. It'll, it'll, It'll move crowds. It'll bring in crowds. But as soon as Jesus quit the miracles, they forsook him in one day. Jesus had the biggest church split of anybody I ever know. Had 5,000 people in one day and miracles were happening and the loaves of the fish were being multiplied and whoo, everything's great. But as soon as he stopped, they left him. Why? Because they were only interested in the demonstrations of God and not who he was. They didn't know him. 
And if we're going to go to that, we're always talking about what God has predestined for the palace. And we're just waiting for something to happen. We're sitting around, oh, my. Come on, Lord, do it, do it, do it. And God's saying, I will do it when you learn of me. I will do it when you go into the inner, inner chamber. I will do it when you go to the table of showbread and start taking of the bread of life. I will do it when you start taking of the joy of the Spirit. I will do it when you begin to have experiences out of a relationship and you see the beauty of the Lord and you taste and see that he's good. I will do it when you come to know me as God and as a, as a, a person in a relationship with you instead of just something of power and excitement and, and experienced through a demonstrational act. God is calling us to an inner temple and to stop by the table of showbread first and come to know Jesus. Seek his face. Oh, that I may know him, Paul said, in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, that I may know him. That was his prayer. And then at the end of his life, I know whom I believe in. And because of that, I'm able to offer my body up and have my head chopped off. L.S. Cooper used to always say when them Roman soldiers were taking him out, oh, joy, oh, oh Paul was probably joyful. <laughs> he said, Paul, you don't understand. Look up there. Don't you see the sun blazing off those blades? He says, no, all I've seen is the son of righteousness. But Paul, you don't understand. Just in a few moments, we're going to have your head cut off. L.S. Cooper said, yeah, and Paul probably said, yeah, that's all right. Before that head hits the ground, God, I have a crown on it. Hallelujah. He knew him. He knew who he believed in, and he was persuaded. Are you persuaded this morning? How deep does your relationship go? How much of God do you really want? What are you willing to pursue and go after with all your heart? How hungry are you to leave the courtyard and go through the laver and get into that holy table of showbread and partake of Jesus? Eat fresh bread every day and make a devotional life of the study of the Word. I don't know how to have an altar call this morning. I'm not feeling led the way I thought I was going to feel led. i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it differently. Would you just grab the person's hand beside you? If they resist, they don't know you, that's okay. Sometimes you don't like to hold hands with a stranger you don't know. Amen. We're wanting revival here. We've got prophecy over our heads from years back and my we've had revival look we started out with none look what we got but we're going to go to a, a, an awakening that's going to be unbelievable but in order for it to happen we've got to get a devotional life through relationship with God not sitting around waiting for it to happen and asking God why ain't it happening where is your presence why ain't you speaking God speaks every day. Just pick up the Bible and read it. He'll speak to you. 
God, Jesus is the Word. When you read the Word, you see and hear from Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer of committal. Just pray after me. Father, first of all, forgive me that we've been so attractive to the demonstrational experiences that we have failed to enter into a relational experience with you. Father, forgive me for seeking your hand all the time and not seeking your face. Help me to move past the brazen altar. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And I know I have to pray that prayer sometime, but I don't want to pray it every day. Help me to be led through the laver. Help me to go into the holy place. Let me be partakers with Christ. Right there at that table of showbread. Let me eat of his flesh. And let me be able to drink of the cup in which he drank from. Let me be all in all what you want me to be and nothing less. Let me come to know you. Forgive me. Wash me. Now let me enter in to that realm of splendor and beauty of relationship. We pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not saved till this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to come and know Jesus. This altar is open. We're going to be right up here. If anybody comes for salvation, we're going to be here. We're here for you. We love you. God loves you. And God wants you to know that he can, he's, he's willing to save to the uttermost. May the Lord bless you. Can I have some brother to come and pray with my brother? Hallelujah. Can you give the Lord praise for a man that's got courage? Come on, lead him through it. Is there another one? Sometimes we just need to feel the need to come to that brazen altar. Is there anybody else? I felt pressed. Thank God. God loves you. Hallelujah. We love you, church. We're going to dismiss you. We're going to pray for this gentleman as long as he needs prayer. We'll see you tonight. Janice Watkins, our missionary from El Salvador, is going to be here. You do not want to miss her. In Jesus' name, amen.